Growing up in the Islamic Republic of Iran, Saeed Ghassaminejad's parents hoped he'd become a scientist, an engineer, anything but what he became, a dissident and a freedom fighter. But he couldn't remain silent about the theocratic oppression in his native land. He ended up in Iran's infamous Evan prison, his sentence handed down by none other than Abul Ghassam Salavati, otherwise known as the Hanging Judge, who was just designated by the United States for his decades of human rights abuses. After that, Said went into exile abroad, and today, as FDD's senior advisor on Iran and financial economics, he's responsible for granular research and incisive analysis. His insights and recommendations are heard at the highest levels of the U.S. government. I'm pleased that he's with us today. I'm Cliff May, and I'm pleased you're with us too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Said, I'm, I'm so glad to have you here. You and I uh, talk on the phone, we email. Usually it's about policy, it's wonky, it's about sanctions, it's about uranium enrichment. I'd like to get to know you a little better and have our listeners do the same. You were born uh, in Iran. Talk about where, when, and what kind of family you were born into. So I was born in Babul in a Mazandaran province near the Caspian Sea in the northern part of Iran. Oh, what kind of family? Middle class Middle family. class family, yeah. My, my dad is an engineer. My mom is a housekeeper. They really didn't like politics, like despise politics. I understand why now, because they were very young when the revolution happened. So I was born in 1982, a few years after the revolution, during the early years of the Iran-Iraq war. And they were young when the revolution happened. And right. it really changed their life. So. And, and let's be clear here. And, and as you know, I, I was in Iran covering the revolution in 1979. And in the years after, as Ayatollah Khomeini took control, those who were considered unsupportive, not just those who were considered dissidents, although particularly those, were in grave danger of being executed, of being imprisoned, of being persecuted, of having their property taken, all of that. So for your, for your father and mother to say after the revolution, let's be careful, let's stay out of politics, that was probably a prudent decision on their part. That's right. So I remember that they always bought me science books. And when I got into politics later, it really caused lots of tensions between me and my parents. They really, as I said, didn't like it. Being raised in Iran, growing in Iran, now I understand that how unusual the situation was. So I remember like we had this VHS player and it was banned in Iran. Like if they took it, it could have real consequences. And I was like seven, eight years old. Because you were re recording things that they didn't want you recording on no, this? No, it was just you couldn't watch the movies that oh. they didn't like, so. Foreign movies, that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, bad influences yeah, on you. Yeah, pre-revolution movies, foreign movies. 
anything. Uh, so you weren't even allowed to have a VHS player. Be, no, it wasn't time. just the, the the tapes that you might put into it. You weren't even allowed to have such a contraption. Yeah, the player so the player itself was banned. I didn't realize so, that. So and I remember that I, I was like seven, eight years old, and my mom was trying to explain to me that we watch movies here. You should not talk to your friends about them. If you see your dad's colleagues and their kids, you should not tell them. Should not talk about this to strangers. And I think it was like the first time that I felt this is really strange. Something is really wrong here. My mom always told me you should never lie, and now she is trying to teach me how to lie. This lying in public is dual face you needed to have in Iran. Also, I think that I'm not sure uh, Americans, Europeans um, understand how totalitarian this regime was even in its early years that they were trying to keep out these other influences. I mean, I assume also if you were listening to Voice of America or uh, American or European, maybe the BBC radio in Farsi, that was also dangerous? Yeah, definitely. As I said, my, my parents were really not into politics. So we, we didn't, they didn't listen to BBC or something like that. But so it would have been dangerous to it, do. Yes, it would have been very dangerous. And the kinds of tapes that you were watching, these were left over or these were sort of uh, being passed about very surreptitiously by yeah. people who still wanted to yeah, get into that? So I tried it myself later, but at that time my dad was doing this, but it was like buying drugs or something, you know. <laughs> All right, so your parents wisely tried to keep you out of politics, and sadly they failed. <laughs> was that in was it in college? When at what point did you start to realize that you had you you had thoughts about the, the regime and about the world, about freedom, and that you were going to start to think about this, maybe write about this, maybe talk about this? Talk, tell me how how did that evolve? So, so I, I lived in five cities until I was. 10 because of my dad's job so i didn't have lots of friends and then we moved to tehran there was this national entrance exam for a school that the regime they called it uh, the organization for development of exceptional talents so you had like a national entrance exam each year in each big city they took like 50 kids something like that so you took the exam yes and you were found to be a gift student that's, yes. that's what we're talking about yes. here and you got into this special school for some really smart kids basically yes so they they wanted they it was very much focused on math and physics mm -hmm. and things like that and mm -hmm. we, our school principal actually was involved in Iran's missile program mm -hmm. so he was very much you know trying to make us interested in building missiles and things like that but they had a very interesting very good library and mm. there were lots of books on history and politics and religion and things like that and you couldn't stay away from them yes yeah, so i <laughs> found those books because as i said my my, my parents taught me only science books so that really i was very fascinated by those subjects and 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 your 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 act political i guess we'd say activism began how and where there was this book written by Ray Shahri. So Ray Shahri was the minister of intelligence during the Musavi era in the 80s. He wrote a book on how they, you know, got rid of Montezeri, who was Khomeini's deputy. And I read that book. How they got rid of him? And yeah. maybe just so give, the, give so, a quick uh, synopsis right. of so, what that means. So Montezeri was Khomeini's deputy. He was supposed to... And we're talking about Khomeini, who was the, the leader of the revolution, the first supreme leader of the Islamic Republic. I mean, I think everybody listening knows that, but just to be clear. Yes. So he was supposed to succeed him. But then Hashemir Afsanjani and Khamenei, the current supreme leader, got together with Khomeini's son, 
they tried to get rid of Montessori. The way that they did it was to arrest one person very close to him, torture him. To arrest and torture somebody close to him. Yes. Uh -huh. Created a tension between Khomeini and Montessori. So Khomeini got rid of him. And so Ray Shahri wrote a book about that. And he was approving in this book or he was disapproving? What was No, it? he was approving. He was, Ray Shahri was the guy who did this. So, I, so he was quite, quite admitted we wanted to get rid so of he Montessori. He was, no, he wasn't saying that. Uh -huh. So he was trying to defend uh, himself because Montessori was very popular yeah, among the Hezbollahites. So he was, in the, in the book, he was trying to defend his decision. So I read that book mm. and being very naive, I told my uh, <laughs> teachers that this doesn't seem really correct. It seems they really tortured this guy, made a wrong case against him to just get rid of Montessori. And then the teacher who was a really good guy told me, look, you should not say these things. This thing really can, you know, Get you in uh, trouble. Get in trouble, yeah. And that was, I think, the, um, I was like, I think, 12 years old, something something like that at that time. Oh, very, uh, still quite young. Okay, but yes. yeah, yeah. Step by step, I felt that like something is really wrong in the society that we are living in. By 14, 15, I really started to make sense of what was happening in the country. And being 15 years old, I felt that I should do something about it. Again, being very naive. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that that's that's how I, how I how I got into politics. And and the next step was what? Were there groups that you would join that you would talk with and not worry excessively that they were going to uh, rat you out? How did you, how, so, so, how do you, how does one get involved in dissident politics in Iran? At least in the nineteen eighties, how did one? Uh, it, it was in 1990s. 1990s, right. So, okay. so when I was like in high school, Khatami was elected as president. I couldn't vote at that time. I was too young. And then I chose to go to University of Tehran, which was really the main uh, university in terms of uh, political history, had a very rich history, had a very rich uh, political background. So I went The most elite university probably in the country, yes? Yeah, so yeah. people in the University of Tehran think it is. Yeah. <laughs> so I went there because of its historical background. And from the beginning, I started writing. I was writing for a student magazine, daily newspaper. But uh, being careful at this point that you wouldn't say things to get yourself in trouble? Or you were kind of pushing the envelope as much as you I could? Think, I think we were, we were pushing the envelopes. We had to close down the student newspaper because they told us, you guys are really, you know. Uh -huh. pushing it too much. Uh -huh. And the, in the last ones, I wrote a piece and they defended the Iraq war. So You defended the Iraq war. You the defended Iraq the, war. the American intervention in Iraq, in Iraq basically. Yes. Okay. So that's the type of, you know, uh -huh. how, how far <laughs> yeah. we were going at that. A few months after that, I was arrested. So, And how old were you when you were arrested? I was 20 years old. I 20 think. years yeah. old. In college, when you, did you have a major? Were you doing mostly sciences or now were you No, doing, I was civil engineer. You were doing civil engineering, yeah. but you had these other activities such as the newspaper and you're 20 years old. Yeah, I was mainly doing newspapers and things like that. I was a little engineering on the <laughs> yeah. side. And was there a particular article that you had written that got you arrested? What happened was that there was a student prizing in University of Tehran, not the big one in 1999. This was in 2003. So I was identified as one of its leaders. leaders. Of this upright, of this uh, protest, this demonstration, I guess it was, yes. university. Protesting what, in, anything in particular or lots of things? So it was, actually it was against something that they didn't, um, you know, oppose that much. It was <laughs> against, uh, they were doing some kind of privatization, you know, like it went outside university 
to other parts of Tehran. The protest, the yes, demonstration the protest, too. Yes. And so I was going to see my father who was in hospital at that time. In uh, hospital, huh? Yeah. And so they came with guns into into my car. I was with friends and they took us with my in, in, with my own car to Avin prison. So I was kind of famous prisoner there because everyone wanted to see the guy who came to Evan prison with his own car. They, they, in other words, they came with guns and they said, drive your car, we're going to Evan prison. Yes. And they, let, I, they I, didn't, I didn't handcuff I, you. They just said, go, here's what's going to happen. Yes, I didn't drive to Evan no. prison myself. Yeah. But at some point, they, you know, they, they told me, go to the back seat and oh, they, they, they drove me. So. And they drove you to the prison. Yeah. Yes. And Evan prison is the most infamous prison, I think everyone knows of it, who knows anything about prisons and in Iran. And t so tell the story of what happened when you got to Evan prison. They sent you to solitary confinement. After two, two, three days, they told me your dad died because they didn't know where you were and your dad is dead. It really put lots of pressure. Was that true? That happened? No, that, that was, that, that wasn't true. So just a lie. They just that, made that, that up just to upset you, upset you a little more. Then after one month, they took a forced confession from me. The FARS News, which is controlled by the IRGC, they came and- Important people, FARS News, F-A-R-S, people see, you'll see it all the time, you'll see it quoted, and uh, it's, it's, it's government-controlled press, and yeah, go ahead to tell what, but uh, people should understand what kind of a, a, a news or propaganda outlet this is, go ahead. Right, so that, that's, that's basically IRGC-owned. Uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Yeah. No, no, yeah. So it's a forced confession. Do they, do they write it for you and say, here, you're going to sign? Or do they say, we want you to write a confession and here are the, the points that we want you to make? Okay. They basically wanted you to say that you made a mistake because you know, we were not armed groups, you know, that, mm. you know, they need some information from you. Where are the guns or something like that? So we, I, I was a, you know, student journalist and yeah. student, student yeah. leader, something like that. So they wanted to say that you made a mistake and, you know, uh, this protest. Were you being badly treated at this point? You were in solitary confinement, so they, obviously. They, it's not yeah. comfortable. So they kicked you time to time, but it was not like the 80s where they really tortured people. And again, we were not, we were not doing anything. I was like yeah, a 20 yeah. years old <laughs> yeah. student who was writing publicly. And yes, they, they got this first confession. And after months, they killed Canadian journalists in Evin prison. They came under huge pressure. So they released some of the prisoners that they had. I, I was I was one of those who got released. And after that, I had to go to court. They sentenced me after a few years of back and forth going to court. And they say, okay, we are going to postpone it. So they sentenced me to two years of prison, suspended for five years. The guy who sentenced me was Judge Salabati, who just was designated by the U.S. government. So what's his position today? The He's, he's a judge. He, he's known as the hanging yeah, judge the hanging yeah. because he uh, issued death sentence for so many people. So the, the suspended sentence is usually they use it to make sure that people don't do bad things. Because they hold it over you. In other words, yeah. you, if you're good, we keep it suspended. If you're not, we're throwing you right in jail. Yeah, yeah so I wasn't, I wasn't that good. Uh, <laughs> uh, I created this student organization called the Iranian Liberal, liberal Students. Uh, Iranian Liberal Students? Yes. Uh -huh. It was after after I left the prison, so we worked on that, and which was basically a classical liberal organization, and it became quite successful. That's branches. Uh, it, the, its main place was the University of Tehran, but it had branches uh, in in other universities. And, and it stood for what? What? What were the goals, or what were the demands, or what? What is it that that you you saw as? 
liberal demands for the, the demand was basically transition to uh, democracy, change change in the nature of regime, having a different constitution, an end to theocracy, an end to the clerical regime. Yeah, and such. So they 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 really didn't like they weren't like no that. happy yeah, with that. So I can imagine. We were under huge pressure in two thousand eight. I left the country because you know I thought you were going to go to jail if you again if you didn't. I imagine. So I I couldn't. Do P, um, PhD there. You did manage to get your master's yes. this time, maybe, well, despite all this. Uh-huh. Yes, and in, in, in uh, engineering. In, in engineering, in engineering. Yes. Okay. So, yeah. And I was working full time. It it was a really boring job as an engineer. I, I wouldn't. I didn't have any future as as an engineer. So and yes, they said I basically couldn't continue my studies. In two thousand eight, we really didn't think that anything is going to happen in Iran soon, and I had to go to military service, which would be very difficult for me to, you know, say this to America, this to Israel, my life for supreme leader every every day for two years. So I went to I went to Paris to. Was continue. it hard to get out of the country? No, because my my I didn't know till the last yeah. minute. So. It, uh, because my sentence was suspended, mm. so I legally could leave the country. And so then you were, so let's go through. Then you went to Paris, and what did you do in Paris? So I the plan was to get a PhD in civil engineering, mm. but then I felt that uh, I cannot really do that anymore. But me being me, I I got my diploma d'ingénieur there, and then then I got a master in finance, and in after finance. that I came to US to get my PhD. And you came to the US to get your PhD. And and while you were in Paris, and uh, were you working in politics and, and protest as, as well? Yes. So when when I went to Paris, like a few months after that, the 2009 happened, uh, which really changed my life plan again. You know, it's an, a, a large scale, the protests with the ones we, re, a lot of us remember, and President Obama decided not to support that because he wanted to make a deal with the regime. That that that's correct. So that happened, and uh, after that, I became quite active in uh, trying to unify the opposition abroad or in abroad. A, abroad, yeah. yeah. Yes. But it's hard to do. There are a lot it's, of different factions, yes, and a lot of and a lot of Iranian agents. I've always heard we have to be careful of who try to infiltrate any distant groups in exile or expatriated. Yes. Yes, that that's right. And after that, I also started thinking that the main thing we can do now is to put economic pressure on the regime because it has become very difficult to do anything inside Iran. The regime has very tight control over everything. So the first thing we need to do is to put economic pressure on the regime to deprive it from the money that it, that it has. So I started working on IRGC network. I presented a paper, I think, in 2011. And by network, you mean where they have investments, where they have ownership, businesses, how their tentacles are beyond just the, the military. After The IRGC is, a, is an elite part of the military, one That's might right, say. Yeah. But you saw that they also had power, economic power and political power, and you were researching that. That's right, yes. So I did this when I was doing my master in finance, and I wrote a paper, presented it in the University of London, and I think uh, Emmanuel saw that paper. Somehow. Emmanuel Otolenghi. Emmanuel Otolenghi, who I should say is an FDD senior fellow, a researcher, also has a doctorate, and he does a lot of interesting work in this area, has for years. That's right. So I met Emmanuel then, I think it was in 2012, when I came to US to do my studies. Manuel contacted me, and that's how I got into working with FTD. 
And so you, the kind of work you've been doing with FDD is, is, is really deep research based on your understanding of finance, economics, your revealing and finding out what's going on on a very granular level within the, within the regime. And what have you seen happen uh, more generally since 2009? How have things evolved inside Iran and with dissidents both inside the country and abroad? What's your reading of, of that? So 2009 was uh, was led by reformists. Even then, you had these slogans which were clearly against what Musabi stood for, like uh, "No to Gaza, No to Lebanon, My Life Only for Iran." So that that's from and when, yeah. And just people understand when you say no, when the people protest and they chant and they have in the most recent "No to Gaza, No to Lebanon," they mean this government, this regime, should not be spending the oil money and of of, of Iran. And its energies uh, to support uh, Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad in Gaza, to support Hezbollah in Lebanon. Let's raise the living standard here. Let's concentrate on the, the, the things we need in this country, as opposed as opposed to what might be called foreign adventures or even imperialism in the in in the region. That's that's that that's part of the one of the important demands being made by yeah, those protesting right. in most re in recent days in over a hundred cities. So in 2009, the leadership was reformist. Yeah. Uh, many people on the street were not like that No to Gaza slogan was their death to Islamic Republic was very popular then. But this was going against what Musavi stood for. So you had this divergence between the people on the ground and the leadership. Another thing which was 2009 was that uh, it was mainly in uh, big cities. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, um, mm -hmm. the middle class, upper middle class. When you move to 2017, 2018, and then 2019, first you don't have that reformist leadership anymore. Right. You don't have a leadership. It's kind of spontaneous and it's hard to see who's leading this movement. 2017, 18, and 2019 protests, they were very widespread. These are the two top widespread protests in Iran. In 2009, it was in just a few big cities. Uh, what you have right now, tests are being driven by lower income class people, not by upper income class people. That really hurts the regime. So the regime has uh, based its ideology on this uh, oppressed people. They said this is the yeah. government for oppressed. For oppressed and this is people. a Quranic word. Mm. Khamenei recently reinterpreted that word. He said to oppress the Mustazafin doesn't mean people who are economically deprived, doesn't mean who are the poor. It means the imams of the earth. The imams? Yes. It means the, the coming elite. Mm -hmm. So that, 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 that shows how, you know, this oppressed people, the, the protest by the poor, it really hurt the regime. So because these are his constituencies. Before, he was saying that these are upper middle class influenced by the West. These are the people who have the money uh, and they want to, you know, overthrow us. Now it's the poor people who have been the base of the regime for, for many years. You know, two things, two questions rise in my mind. One is um, no question that the sanctions of, that the U.S. has put on the regime has hurt the economy, but there's also plenty of blame for those 
theocrats running the economy, mismanaging the economy, the rampant corruption that's been in the in this in this country for years and years. I think probably much worse corruption than even under the Shah. Uh, and people seem to get that because these protests are not at the U.S. for having imposed sanctions, as a lot of people thought they would be. These protests are at the government for having for for continually wasting the the riches of the country and for the corruption I and mean, that's that's been the case in almost all of these protests right they haven't there are government organized protests like death to america death to israel but that's not the the spontaneous uprisings are not that they're against the regime and the regime is held to blame that that's right that's right yes they i haven't heard any any slogan any chant against sanctions or against trump or against the us government and uh, we should uh, we should give the credit where the credit is due. So there is a reason why since Trump came into into office, you had the two largest protests in Iran in four decades. That and the reason is that for whatever reason, maybe they are wrong, but they felt that this U.S. government is not with the regime. This it's, government is not is not with the regime. Not with the regime. It, right, it yeah. stands. With the Iranian people, uh, may, maybe some people say, "Okay, that's that's a, that's the wrong perception or whatever." But I think that's what's driving protests, at least to some degree. And by the way, people also said if the U.S. imposed sanctions and the Europeans didn't, you couldn't really put much pressure on the regime. That was also wrong. People like you, I think, said, "No, it'll there'll be plenty of pressure." Yeah, that really shows the effect of U.S. unilateral sanctions. So for years, both in academia and in the think tank policy board, the orthodoxy was that unilateral sanctions are not working. Multilateral sanctions are working. These sanctions show that's wrong if the U.S. really put pressure. You don't need the U European government because the U.S. economic power will force the European companies to do what the U.S. says. And if you look at the, if you look at the numbers, these are even much more successful in terms of the, the economic pain that they have caused than Obama's multilateral sanctions. And, and two points we should make because people misunderstand that. One is, and you've worked on this, the sanctions are meant, meant to squeeze in specific places. There's no, it's not humanitarian aid that's being kept out. It's not medicine. It's not food. There's money for that. You're trying to squeeze specific industries, companies, and individuals who are responsible for oppressing the people of Iran. That's very much how these sanctions have been designed by those who have, by the U.S. government and by those who have been advising the U.S. government. We're not trying to do damage to the people. We're trying to get the government to say, okay, we're going to stop with the uh, foreign adventures. We're going to stop supporting terrorism. We're going to stop building missiles and nuclear weapons. And if they would do that and become a normal nation, well, then we'll support that normal nation economically and in every other way. The difficulty is, and this is an important point for you to address, uh, that this regime has a very specific ideology and has for 40 years. We talked about the Ayatollah Khomeini, the current supreme leader, only the second in 40 years is Khomeini. You'll pronounce both better than I would have, but the ideology is the same, and it's a very belligerent and aggressive ideology. Uh, we talk about the, the economy in, in bad shape. The Ayatollah Khomeini, the first supreme leader, said this revolution is not about the price of watermelons. In other words, I, people may be poor. People may suffer. That's okay with me because we have a revolution to spread throughout the Middle East and beyond, and it's an Islamic revolution. That, those are his words, not mine. And, and 
That, and that is what he is attempting to do and has rather successfully done, certainly in uh, Lebanon. Uh, I think that uh, Syria is very much uh, what you might call a, a satrap, to use the Persian word for uh, a province of an empire. Um, increasingly, Iraq is being controlled they, by, by the regime. The regime wants to control Yemen and is supporting the Houthis to do so. Um, th th and this is a regime. Now, I guess my question is, to what extent do those in power seriously believe in this ideology and what to the extent that they simply want the power and the riches and we're talking about vast riches for the supreme leader and others what to what extent do you think and this is mind reading i know is this a matter is this a belief in ideology or is it just about power and wealth for them first first thing about that human humanitarian one so we, we looked at the medicine china's export of pharma product to iran has increased uh, the EU export to Iran, it's the same number. So if they have money to buy like 500 million euro of uh, pharma product in 2019 in eight months, so it, sh it, shows to, it shows that the banking channel works well. It's the regime's decision not to buy 1, mil 1 billion euro. And someone may say the sanction has, you know, uh, limited their uh, revenue, so they don't have money to buy more. That's wrong because we know that they have $85 billion of currency reserve sitting outside around the world. And because the food and medicine, they are not sanctioned, there is no limit on them to buy medicine. They can do whatever, they, they cannot do whatever they want, but they but can they buy, buy medicine. They can buy food and medicine for that $85 yes. billion. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's about that uh, medicine thing that uh interestingly the regime officials themselves they are saying that we don't have a medicine shortage it's the regime's uh, apologists in the west mm -hmm. who are constantly saying there is a widespread uh, sanction caused medicine shortage which which is not true mm -hmm. uh if there is a shortage there as the regime officials themselves are saying it's because of the corruption the regime officials themselves are saying that uh, we, we have corrupt people here who are buying the medicine. They, they, they don't distribute it or they are getting the foreign currency from us, but then they go and buy luxury cars and things like that. So that's what, what they are saying. And the ideology, many, many people um, here in the West, they, they don't think that Khamenei really believes in the ideology. And I think the reason is that the God somehow has, has died here in the West, especially among the elite. The what? Say again? The, the God is dead somehow. God is dead. Uh, yeah. Here, like many, yeah. many of the elite, they really uh, don't believe it. And it's very hard for them to believe that someone like Khamenei really believed that. That he's a man of faith, that this is, a real, this is an ideology, but it's an ideology derived from a theology, and it's a specific theology. Right. So, and if you look at, look at it through Khamenei's eyes, why he shouldn't believe that? So Khamenei, like 50 years ago, he was a poor guy mm. sitting in a small city uh, in Iran. Uh, he was dealing with a king mm. who was very powerful, who was, a, uh, he was an important U.S. ally. He had a very powerful army, very powerful uh, security forces. And somehow that king has been overthrown. And then Khamenei, when the revolution happened, Khamenei wasn't an important figure. Many things should have, many things happened to put Khamenei in power 
and he's there for 30 years. So he really believes it that, you know, he's a man, he's, he's a chosen one by the God to lead, uh, to lead the, the Shia empire. So I, I think he really believes that. And uh, he also something we should know about Khamenei, that he has a very apocalyptic vision about the future. So he comes from this from a school which they really believe in this, you know, the hidden imam will come. And if you look at the literature that people close to Khamenei are putting out, it's very much focused on uh, the reappearance of the hidden imam. Right, and the hidden imam who went into occultation, who disappeared centuries and centuries ago, and is coming back, kind of a savior, kind of a messiah. Figure, right, yeah. right. So I, I, I believe Khamenei yeah. really thinks, uh, and he's a, he's really a man of faith. Yeah. And briefly, uh, the president uh, Rouhani is he a, a true believer? So Rouhani, <laughs> so Rouhani, he's a. You know, he, when he was he was a kid, that's something he wrote in his own book. Says that he saw a very he saw a golden thing on the sky. So you know, I don't know. He was following it. So he had some kind of vision when he was he was a kid. But he, he doesn't seem to be he, he much of a believer. He he seems to be more like Rafsanjani, a corrupt type. Who you know who, who wants the power, but he also believes in the. He, he's not a believer like Khamenei, but he believes in uh, the Shia theology. He believes the, in the mission of the Islamic Republic, but I don't feel like he is like you know he's. I don't feel he's very much interested in reappearance of the Mahdi, but he's definitely very much interested in building a Shia empire in the region. And Mahdi being uh, the word for savior. Yeah. Uh, there's one other person I've just got to ask you about, and that's Javad Zarif, the foreign minister, because he spent years and years in the U.S. His English is impeccable. Uh, he goes to a restaurant in Vienna with uh, Secretary of State John Kerry and knows just which fork to use. Um, so very clever, very clever man. What do you suspect is his ideological or theological uh, belief? I think he's a true believer too. Yeah. Based on the things I I read for, uh, about him, he seems to be a true believer. Really believe in the mission of the Islamic Republic. I have to say something. Like mm -hmm. people always look at. So Rouhani is different from Khamenei in some sense. We are all different from each other, right? And then they say, okay, this one is like you know the moderate one. This one is the Hardliner, when they are all hardliners, mm -hmm. but they are they come in they come in shades. Obviously, you know someone is much more crazier, someone is much much more pragmatic. Uh, but it's not that they are moderate. They all they all want the same thing. Yeah, and they can all have the same goal, and they can have different strategies or or see at a different timetable. Let's you know back off a little bit, get some more concessions, then we'll be in a stronger position later. These are smart people who think strategically, and they may disagree on some of the issues of strategy, but that doesn't mean, as so many in media and even academia believe, oh, these are the moderates who really want peaceful coexistence between the Islamic Republic of Iran and the West, and these are the ones who don't. That's some that's as you see it, and I agree with you. That's that's a that's a mis reading of the situation. Look, like, look, for example, Rafsanjani was portrayed as the moderate. So Rafsanjani is actually one of the few really top political leaders in Iran who actually talked about erasing Israel 
from the map. Mm-hmm. So the other one would be Ahmadinejad. So everyone everyone forgets that it was Rafsanjani who first said that. So we, you know, throw a bomb on Israel. Uh, they all they all will be gone if they threw one uh, one on us. So we are here. We are a big nation. We are a Muslim nation. Muslims will be here. So th- th- as I said, they are all hardliners. They come in different shades. They are not. None of them is moderate. So the U.S. under President Trump got out of the Iran deal that President Obama had concluded, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. The Islamic Republic did not withdraw from it. They stayed in it, and the Europeans said, you stay in it, we'll do the best we can for you, and so the, the deal still exists. What we, I think, know at this point is that the Islamic Republic of Iran has been all along and increasingly lately violating its obligations under that agreement, which theoretically is still in force with the Europeans. The Europeans are trying not to respond to those violations. Um, It's my view, you tell me if you think I'm wrong, that the Europeans are having increasing trouble maintaining this attitude that it's all working fine, they're abiding by it, we we just need the Americans to come back into it after the next election. Uh, The Europeans don't want to do what's they're obligated to do, which is to reimpose sanctions in, in light of these violations, but they're at least discussing it and feeling some pressure to. Am I reading it the way you are? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I think Europeans are in a position that uh, <clears throat> they're, they're stuck in it. And I think they, they fear that the U.S. may go back to the deal soon. Like Depending on the results of the next election, is yes. what you're saying, yeah. Yes, so they don't want to, you know, they don't want to leave it now for a, for a U.S. president, uh, you know, in one year come and say, okay, we want to go back to JCPOA. I think uh, that's their problem, and part of it is that Trump derangement syndrome, so, uh, you know, they really don't seem to be able to get over the fact that Trump left this deal and uh, as as you said, Iran is violating the deal. But the fact that Iran is not leaving the deal shows how how good good it was for Iran. They knew it was a good deal yes. for them. They knew they got the better deal in this. They, I, I think Zarif thought he had come to the poker table and left with his opponent's shirts in his bag. Yes, Khamenei understands that how good a deal this was for him. Yeah, that's because they were going to be enriched and they weren't going to have to to end their nuclear weapons program. They would have to, in certain ways, certain ways only, possibly delay it for a few years and not that long a time. This is, gets back to the strategic question of how you achieve your goals rather than whether you're going to achieve your goals. That, that, that's right, yes. And they, they, they control, you know, four Arab capitals now. And thanks, four Arab capitals, right, yeah. Thank, thanks to the... You know the, the the appeasement under Obama, uh, and uh, the, the basically Europeans helped too. So like EU in the Lebanon has not done a good job in Iraq. They have they have done nothing. So so yeah, the deal was really good for for the regime, and I think it was the best decision to leave it. And by the way, we should point out that the the so the sunset clauses uh, will start coming into play. In other words, lifting restrictions as early as what October twenty twenty of next that's year, right? right? Yes, uh, for yeah. the arms embargo. For the arms embargo, and then others that that would follow. That, that's what's not understood. That this deal was not a, a permanent halt to the nuclear weapons program. It was uh, giving them a giving the regime a, a, what's called a some by some a peaceful pathway to. Uh, membership in the Nuclear Weapons Club without any change in behavior on terrorism, 
uh, on incitement to genocide, on a human rights oppression in, in, in the country. So two more things I want to talk about. The first is just talking about the human rights situation now. We've had we had a huge protest not too long ago. It seems to have been squashed considerably, but maybe a thousand people were killed more than 100 cities in which the protest took place. Just talk a little bit about what you understand to be the human rights situation. So on the human rights question, one thing we should uh, know that it's actually after the JCPOA, after the negotiations started with Rouhani in 2013, uh, it was the JPOA at that time. Mm -hmm. Rouhani has the worst track record in terms of human rights. Maybe the only person worse than him was Musavi, which, you know, the 8088 massacre happened under his watch. Rouhani, Rouhani's record is really worse than Ahmadinejad al-Khatami and Rafsanjani. And it all happened while the U.S. and EU was negotiating with him. Uh, the number of executions went up. The number of people, you know, people who have been shot uh, gone, gone up. So the, the deal really didn't help the human rights at all. And right now many people say that, okay, it wasn't supposed to do that, but it's not how they sold it. So there was, a, there was an echo chamber here. Part of it were some well-known human rights organization who defended Rouhani, who defended the deal. And they said this deal will help the human rights situation because it will help the moderate Rouhani and then Rouhani will help the human rights organization inside and outside the country and things will be better. It clearly didn't happen. And the human rights situation right now is really uh, abysmal. Like they, they, they killed close to 1,000 people. Uh, they themselves say we arrested 7,000 people there are other estimates which put the number of uh, arrests around 13,000. So it, this happened like in a, you know, a few days, mm -hmm. not, not even a month, just, just a few days. And these are all happening under Rouhani's watch. It, it, you know, some, of, some people say, oh, Rouhani does, doesn't control anything. No, Rouhani is sitting at the Supreme National Security Council. And that's where these decisions are being made. Rouhani has control over the Minister of Intelligence and Security which under Rouhani has become much, much, much more nastier than it was before. And <clears throat> Rouhani, true that Rouhani doesn't control IRGC, but he doesn't say anything against it. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't, he doesn't uh, object what they are doing. He doesn't tell them, okay, I'm not going to give you the money. I'm not going to give you the budget. He is actually raising their budget. So, mm -hmm. so I, I think he is really, <clears throat> we, we knew that he was committed. We have been saying that from the beginning. And now it should be clear to everyone that he's a, he's a committed servant of the Islamic Republic and human rights under him is worse than it was before. So you're, I guess, to the, my final question, because we're on time, your, your, your recommendations to the U.S. government and to the European governments at, the, at this point would be what? That would be to continue the pressure and accelerate the pressure and try to get this regime to back off. <coughs> Yes, in terms of, so we, we need a, <clears throat> uh, two sets of policy. One of them should be maximum pressure. The other set, as my colleague Behnam mm -hmm. coined the phrase, should be a maximum care. So maximum, maximum care, Max maximum support. Maximum support. Yeah. So what, uh, in terms of maximum pressure, 
what we need to do is to work on the non-oil experts. So the petrochemical, the metals, uh, Iran's non-oil experts only drops 11%. Mm -hmm. We need to have it at least 50%. And then we need to work on the on banning the export of uh, export of capital goods to Iran. Mm -hmm. So to to put pressure on the manufacturing and the industries uh, which are producing revenues uh, for the regime. Uh, <clears throat> I think these two would be really helpful. In terms of maximum support, uh, what the U.S. can do is to provide uh, communication tools, uh, mainly the Internet. The yes, because the regime has shut down uh, the Internet during the protests and they are now working on intranet. So the U.S. has the capability to do that. It's uh, that's what I'm told. Uh, the question is mainly uh, the financial cost, and I think it's very important that the U.S. does it in Iran because main first because Iran is the main enemy in the Middle East, but also because we are getting into a fight with China, and Iran can be a testing ground to provide this kind of uh, communication tools. Mm -hmm. If it, if at some point comes, the fight with China comes to the point that U.S., you know, should uh, work with the pr protest movements in countries that China has huge controls. Uh, the second thing I think is that <coughs> we need to, U.S. can actually help and uh, educate and train uh, civil society activists in Iran who are organizing this kind of protest. Uh, <clears throat> U.S. does some kind of training, but mainly uh, on other issues. I think uh, helping them to know how to, how to organize this protest, how you can communicate with each other safely, how you can uh, make sure that the damage that the security forces are doing is minimized. These are the things that some people should study uh, <clears throat> and then teach it to people. These are not the things that someone who goes to protest, you know, can can learn it immediately. If there are materials out there, this this can this can be uh, very helpful. I think these 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 two things can be very helpful. Another thing that many people, many Iranians are saying is that. Uh, why no one does anything about the money which is being stolen, invested outside the country. We know that many of the children of the children of the regime's officials are uh, in the West, in the US, in the, in the EU. And clearly they are uh, living a very good life. So where the money comes from. Mm -hmm. And uh, the US can shed light on that. There was a piece of legislation. I think President Obama vetoed it. Uh, it's now in the Congress. I think the name was like Iran Leadership Act, something like that, which was looking at where the money is. So these are these are the type of the things. These are the type of things uh, you U.S. can do as part of the maximum support. I take the view that a, a basic rule of of national security and strategy is 
You do not enrich people who are calling for your death and destruction. You just don't give them money in the belief that you can buy them off. At best, you might be able to rent them for a while, but it comes back. Comes back. But if the kinds of measures you're talking about, maximum pressure of, against the regime, maximum support for the opposition, if those measures were to succeed, would it mean what would it would it mean that that the regime would be overthrown, or would it mean the regime comes to the table and says, okay? We need to relieve ourselves of this pressure and we'll make serious concessions. We don't need to have nuclear weapons. Or or is your answer that either of those would be good results and better than the status quo? And so you push and see how far you can get. What's what's your view? I know many people believe that <clears throat> if they come to the table, there can be a good deal with them. I really don't believe that because this is the regime which looks – which sees things long term. So they have a leader who has been there for 30 years. The next leader will be there probably for 50 years. So they can they can wait. They can make a deal with you when the pressure is very high. And then we have a you have a democracy here. So this president go another comes, maybe he has a different policy, he doesn't want to get him very much involved in Middle East or he sees the world differently. And then they can <coughs> go back to what they have been doing. Then they can go back to building the nuclear bomb with all the money that they got because of this deal. And then it would be very much uh, diff very difficult to deal with them next time. Every time that you know uh, this regime does something bad and gets away with that, the next time dealing with them is much more difficult. I think we have a very good uh, opportunity here to really put pressure on them. The regime is really on the edge. It needs a, a strong push to go <clears throat> where it came from, to be overthrown. And I think it would be a mistake for the Trump administration to negotiate with them and make a deal. Because I'm sure at some point they come back to the negotiation table and if they are under huge pressure, they will make some concession. The moment that the pressure is gone and they see a bright future for themselves, they go back to what they have been doing. Well, Saeed, great to be with you. Enjoyed getting to know you a little better. Uh, thank you for all the good work you're doing, um, really to, 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 to free the people of Iran who have been under such oppression for so many decades now. Um, so thanks for your work here. Thanks for being with us. And thanks for all of you listening today. Thank here you for having me. Thank you, Saeed. You're listening to Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May. You've been listening to Foreign Policy.